Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a DC native, actor, performer, Helen Hayes Award winner. It's Frank Britton, everybody. (laughs) Uh, uh, Patrick, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Frank? (laughs) I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being had. Thank you for, for joining me this evening. And you are here to talk about... Bringing the noise, bringing the funk. live original cast recording that's right yeah that's right. and a show that definitely deserves a live cast recording i don't think you could do this one in the studio and really do it justice you know i was i was actually going to say that because that's the type of show that you know it's it just you know the audience is so important and um and i first heard that see many years ago when it came out mm-hmm. i was like oh they recorded this live this is so cool and this was long before i got into theater i was just a big fan of the show because it's a show about it's you know just a musical review about black history mm-hmm. and uh detailing from from slavery to the present uh, time at that time and um that was my hamilton that was my rent when it came out i was about 16. Mm. I was about 16 when it came out, when it was first performed. And, and um, I just saw commercials for it. I just saw commercials for the show on television. And I never got to see it live. But mm. uh, and I just saw a few clips over time, over the years. And two of my favorite actors are in it. I'm not the tapper, not the tap dancer. But uh, I love tap dance. And... Um, you know, my only connection to George C. Wolf uh, was uh, many years ago, I did a production of the Colored Museum uh, with a company that's uh, sadly long, long defunct. But this was, wow, it was almost 19 years ago now. So that's my only connection with George C. Wolf. Um, and a good friend of mine, Bakari Wilder, was in the original Broadway cast. Oh, okay. Uh, he played Uncle Huckabuck. Okay. Yeah, he played Uncle Huckabuck. Okay. And another friend, uh, Joseph Monroe Webb, was also in the OBC. And he was a performing understudy. And I believe he later on replaced someone in the cast. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the show had a really long run. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so those are, and so those are my uh uh, tenuous, you know, like closer connections uh, to bring the noise. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I have one more story. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just sure. No, story. not at all. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, no, this was about 16 years ago now. Uh, next month it will be 16 years. Hallelujah, baby was 
playing at Arena Stage, mm-hmm. and uh, one of you know uh, Ms. Anne Ducanet, Tony Award-winning Ms. Anne yes. Ducanet, uh, whom I love, 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 love. Uh, she, when I found out she was in the show, I said, "Oh God, I have to go." I'm, you know, I'm, it's Anne Ducanet, you know. And so I go to the closing night, closing night performance. And uh, she, of course, played Mama in the show, deservedly earned the Helen Hayes Award for it. Closing night, the reception in the lobby. I'm just kind of standing there, you know, and this was way before, years before the renovation mm-hmm. of Arena and years before. And I remember, I, I could be totally wrong, but I think it was kind of like low ceilings in the room, in the area where I was. Uh, I could be totally wrong, but um, I was just kind of standing there on the floor, you know, just old peon. I'm just standing there, just kind of looking around, and and I turned to my. <laughs> and then the show was a co-pro. Uh, for those who don't, uh, co-pro is shorthand for co-production. It was a co-pro with George Street's Playhouse, and I was directed by Arthur Lawrence, and I'm was just standing on the floor in the lobby, you know, just kind of looking around and there was this big buffet table, you know, with food and everything. And I'm just standing there and I turn to my immediate right and there's Arthur Lawrence. (laughs) 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 And I I literally just went, I I just happened to turn to my right and I went, Mm -hmm. oh, oh, I said, oh, (laughs) I said, said, oh, (laughs) I went, oh, hi, Mr. Lawrence. Um, Fantastic production. Thank you. Thank you. So it's a pleasure <laughs> to meet you and honored to meet you. And he said, oh, oh, thank you. He was very kind and very mm-hmm. gracious. And I told him my name and we chatted for like a maybe about a minute. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of went back on to just standing there by myself and just kind of looking around. So then Miss Ducanet comes out and she goes to the buffet. She's going, you know, we're, we're both at the buffet, kind of like near the buffet table. Mm-hmm. So she comes up and then I just you know, gently approached her and I said, Ms. Ducanet, oh, you know, so I, I just started fanboy, like, you know, totally fanboy. Mm-hmm. And she was so wonderful. She couldn't have been any more gracious and kind and just so awesome. And so I, when I meet artists whose work I admire or, I, you know, if I, you know, this is someone I admire greatly or their work, work that I love, I will break down moments, like particular moments in a particular thing that they've done mm-hmm. and express to them how much I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in, in this case, we were talking about bringing the noise. We were talking about bringing the noise and I brought up um, something from nothing, which is one of my all-time favorite numbers from that score. And she told me of the history behind, because she composed, co-composed the score as well. Right. And she earned a Tony nomination for the score as well. And uh, she won Best Featured Actress in a Musical, um, and, you know, beating out Adina Menzel and several others. Right. And, and um, she was telling me of the history behind that number and the creation of it. And she, was, she came from a family of sharecroppers in the South. And so she gave me this brief family history in the middle of a closing night reception. We were talking about bringing the noise, bringing the funk, you know, just the most wonderful thing. And she was lovely. And, <laughs> and so we were, you know, so that's my 
my my fond fond memory of meeting Ms. Anne Ducanet. And uh, so that so those are the that was the special story I had uh, for this podcast was um, <laughs> was, uh, was was meet, was meeting her and getting to express how much I loved her work in the show. I just love her work, period. Because then I started listening to I found recordings of old forty fives that she recorded way back in the day, like these blues songs and uh, these kind of obscure these obscure recordings. And I found a few of them on YouTube and oh yeah, I just love her voice and just such power. And I mean, that is the definition of a best featured actress in a musical Tony award-winning performance. What she did in that show, you know, singing in these different genres and styles, playing these different roles, these different characters, you know, over the span of the show, along with my man, and everyone knows he's my man, Mr. Jeffrey Wright. That that's my man. <laughs> so that, 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 oh yes. Yeah. So you know, like him going from Angels in America to Bringing the Noise. You know, I mean, come on now. I mean, yeah. that, <laughs> come on. And you know, and he's a native Washingtonian, like myself. I forgot he was in this. Yeah, yeah, he was the actor, yes, he and Miss Ducanet yeah. was the singer. And um, you know, the fellas, right. they the the tappers, they all played different characters in in certain um numbers and uh yeah i mean i i said to myself if they ever revive this i would love to play the actor one day i really hope i do but i think i may be too old so i don't know when that will happen (laughs) because he was only about 31 when he did it at the time and i am 41 now so i don't know if yeah uh, so i don't know if you know but i'm holding out hope um that i would love to one day but (laughs) just that that show is just so (laughs) just you know that show is just so virtuosic for everybody for for everyone involved Mm -hmm. um just the level of virtuosity involved you know with the acting and the singing and the dancing and the tapping and uh, gosh, you know, I, I just wonder why. I know there was a tour after the Broadway run, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm yes. wondering why it hasn't been revived or, you know, and Savion, of course, like Savion. You know, yes, we love Savion. And, and so I'm just wondering why, why it's never been revived or because it's a show that, you know, it should be like... A Hamilton, where you know, because <laughs> it's Black history. Mm-hmm. It's Black history. <laughs> well, so what, wait, but what you said that 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 struck my my interest actually surprised me a little bit. Is you said when you discovered the show, you weren't really a performer. No, I wasn't. I really, yeah, uh, I wanted to be a film composer at that time. I was in love with the music wow. and the voices. I had always wanted to be a film composer from the time I was five, um, up until about 19 and a half when I decided to pursue an acting career and train to be an actor, I wanted to be a film composer. I'd always loved film and television and theater and musical theater and, and music. And, um, but yeah, at that time, I, I had no um, interest nor desire at that time to be a performer. Uh, so this was a, why a film composer I just, like specifically <laughs> I it was now I know how it all began this was in 1984 I was watching Planets of the Apes the original 
So I hear, mm. I hear, you know, I just hear this music and I'm just in love with the music and the music just sent me. So from that point on, in 1984, the late great Mr. Jerry Goldsmith became a very important mm-hmm. person in my life. And um, I remember the night, the day he passed, I was opening a play. And uh, this was 16, almost 17 years ago now. And um, from that point on, I, when the, from the time I was five, I would, you know, and then shortly after, it was Ennio Morricone. I think it was once upon, it was once upon a time in America. Someone in my family had yeah. rented it. And I was listening to the music. It, was, it wasn't even the Westerns. It was once upon a time in America. And then someone, sure. rent, then someone brought home, I think it was either a fistful of dollars or for, free, or for a few dollars more. And I was hearing this revolutionary sound with the Western. And I was like, so from that point on, from the age of five, those two guys became just major influential figures in my life. And, um, you know, I'd say, yeah, definitely. I don't hold one to a higher regard than the other. The two of them are on equal level with me (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they work, they work at, you know, changed my life in so many ways. And, um, but everyone says John Williams first, you know, John Williams. And I love John Williams too. You know, I, I, I kind of mm-hmm. see these fellas all around at the same time. But Ennio Morricone, Jerry Goldsmith were the two that um, started me down that path. So I just collected soundtracks and scores over the years. Um, you know, I first discovered Howard Shore with Silence of the Lambs. And this was when I first mm. saw it back in 1991. And mm-hmm. uh, then I started looking at his Cronenberg work, his early Cronenberg work, uh, right around that time as well. And, um, oh, yeah, I tell you, I can get so geeky with film music and talking about film music. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, and another, another very important gentleman. I've, I've met several of my film music mm. um, uh, heroes uh, over the years and um, yeah I met this was 20 years ago yep 20 years ago um, very another very important uh, film music hero in my life composing hero Elliot's Goldenfall mm. and um, he was in town with Julie Taymor and uh, you know as everyone knows that's his long-term partner a long-time partner and she was giving she was being honored with a retrospective of her work at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. I was in training at the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts at that time. And my movement teacher, and I didn't know this until one day in class, she was a longtime friend of Julie Taymor's and Elliot's Golden Falls, and she actually appeared in Julie Taymor's Juan Darien, a carnival mass on Broadway, with, <laughs> directed by Julie Taymor. And she also helped construct a lot of the puppets and masks that uh, Julie Taymor designed. And she bring, one day we we're in class, and she breaks out Julie Taymor's book, Playing with Fire. And she starts pointing things out, saying, oh, that's me. I, I made that. I did. And I said, what? And then I just said, you know, Elliot's Golden Fall? <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I do. And I said, oh, my God. So then she, she hooked me up with the invitation to mm. this reception. 
one one of the one of the three times I skipped class, um, excusably mm-hmm. uh, at NCBA, and I go there. They had a welcoming committee, and once everything kind of pi- piped down, I went over to Mr. Goldenfall and introduced myself. And then, oh man, I tell you, Pastor, he was the coolest. We were talking for like we were talking for like thirty minutes. I'm telling him I'm breaking down like my favorite moments in his scores, and, mm-hmm. and he's looking at me like, "Yeah, I know I wrote it, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm, but I'm like, yeah, and this and this and this." I tell you, man, I, and I and he couldn't have been. Anymore, you know, just another gracious one. He was so cool. And uh, then I met Miss Taymor and I said, oh, I'm, we're, you know, I, I mentioned the mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And so we, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Uh, I met Bill Conti two years before that at the Kennedy Center around that same time. He was lovely. Uh, I love his stuff too. These mm-hmm. are all of my heroes. I'm telling you that I met. Uh, one of the best moments, though, uh, in addition, this is right up there with Elliot's Golden Falls. Um, uh, the encounter with Mr. Golden Fall, Mike, the late great Michael Kamen, whose work uh, oh, you yeah. know, I just worship his stuff because I, but, you know, when you get into like the film music, the stuff that he did with his orchestral music. Uh, when you look at this, his action scores, I mean, you hear his action scores, they were so wonderfully well, over Die the Hard. I mean, Michael Kamen. Die Hard. I mean, yeah, yeah, Die Hard. Yeah. Die, Hard lethal, Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Weapon the Lethal yeah. Weapon films. You, the music is so insanely energetic and over the top. Like he gave yeah. his orchestras, he gave his orchestras workouts. Yeah. So I uh, and I'm his synthesizer support. players too. <laughs> yeah, synth- right, synthesizer players, mm-hmm. and he had a rock and roll background, so you mm-hmm. can hear all of that in like some of those action scores. But he was commissioned. This was in 1998. The Kennedy Center commissioned him to write. A uh, to write a new piece for the National Symphony Orchestra. It was called The New Moon in the Old Man's Arms. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful composition, wonderful piece. And that night, this was the premiere. I can't recall, and this is my, you know, uh, I have a steel trap memory. So I'm like, why can I, why can I not remember mm. how much I paid for these? I know it was about $100 total I paid. And but it was a a dinner with a buffet and a meet and greet kind of mm-hmm. and a Q&A before the actual performance. So I said, oh, Mr. Kamen's going to be here. I have to do this. I have to go to this. So I go to the dinner. You know, he had another composer there. Um, there was another composer there, Richard Daniel Poor, whose work I like. He had another he had a work premiering there as well. So it was a Q&A with the two of them. Mm-hmm. But of course, I was there for Mr. Kamen. So then when um, it was time for folks to get up and go eat. I go directly to him. Some people were, they had like uh, CDs of the score from uh, the Iron Giants that mm-hmm. he scored, uh, the film that he scored. And so, you know, I think there were a couple of kids. It was, it was wonderful to see. And um, so I go up to him <laughs> and I start talking about two of my favorite moments musically in all of the Die Hard scores. Uh, and of course, you know, he only scored the first three, the original trilogy. Right. And um, and I mentioned a cue that you heard in the first film. It was just a repeated, um, bra- it was just the same uh, repeated brass chords. It was when Alan Rickman was dropped 
from Nakatomi Plaza. That's not a hostage. You heard that cue earlier on in the film. Uh, it was during a shootout. And I was obsessed with that, that score when I was a kid. And so I told him about, about that. And how much I loved it. But then he really got excited when I told him about this one. It was a note. It was a sustained note that I was so like I was so obsessed with. You first heard it in Die Hard 2. And then he brought it back for Die Hard with a Vengeance. And all I did was comment. It was this one note, this one sustained note. And he just looked at me and went, come here. And he just like hugged me. He just embraced me. Because I loved it. <laughs> he was, I mean, he was just so ebullient and so exuberant and just enthusiastic. He was, he was awesome. But he and Golden, Golden Thought was more chill. Golden Thought was like more chill and just kind of laid back and, and really cool. And then Cayman was like, hey, you know, it, it was just, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, those guys, man, uh, all those guys have seen so much to me. Oh, my God. Okay, one more, one more story. Sure. 2007, it was my 28th birthday. A uh, dear, dear friend of mine was working at Blues Alley at the time. And she knew, she knew how much I loved uh, Terrence Blanchard. Love Terrence Blanchard. Mm-hmm. His film music, the way he writes themes, is just, ah, oh, there's such a, oh, I, I just can't even describe how his work has, it hits me emotionally, like a lot, a lot of what Mordecai music uh, does. He's um, Spike Lee's composer, As well as Christopher right? Young. Yeah, okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah. As well as Christopher Young, uh, another composer whose work I, ah, oh. mm-hmm. but the, the way he writes from this emotional level. Mm-hmm. And well, with Blanchard, the first film that Mr. Blanchard scored, Spike film, was Jungle Fever. Mm. And um, Spike's father, Billy, composed the scores to do the right thing. And I believe Mo Better Blues. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, but then from like Jungle Fever, then Malcolm X on. And uh, so my friend knew I loved Terrence Blanchard. And so she, he was performing there. He had this new album come out, A Tale of God's Will, uh, which was about Hurricane Katrina because he's from New Orleans and mm-hmm. he composed an entire album uh, from that. And uh, so I just went to Blues Alley for the first time. You know, she hooked me up with the tickets. Mm-hmm. I go to Blues Alley and he performed with the band. It was his, 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 um, um, his, his band, it was so cool. And then I go up to him and I meet him. And around that time, the score from Inside Man came out. He scored mm. Inside Man. And mm. I, you know, I'm, I, was obsessed with, I was obsessed with that score. And he's big on leitmotif mm-hmm. uh, in his work. And I, and there's, a, there's one theme that he wrote for Clive Bowman's character. And 
I was like, oh, I felt like he wrote it for me, you know? Mm. And um, it's this really short epic, but epic cue that's on the soundtrack. Uh, but you hear it numerous times throughout the score. And I just went up to him and I remember I was telling him and he was kind of looking at times he would look up at me, but he was looking downward a little bit. He was, I could tell he was listening because mm -hmm. I was breaking down everything. And I said, it felt like you, I told him, I said, Mr. Blanchard, it felt like you wrote that Dalton's world cue for me. It's just such a beautiful piece. And he's like, wow, thank you. Thank you. It was so cool. See? <laughs> I'm just like fanboy, you know? <laughs> so those are my encounters, Patrick. Those are the film music heroes I've met uh, personally over the years. And they all were so wonderful. They all that, were so wonderful. That's extensive. I want to drill down on it for one second. But I first have to say, in case Chris Klimek and, and Jordan Friend are listening, that yes, I know Michael Kamen scored <laughs> License to Kill. Okay, there we can move. He, there. he actually did. Yeah. And he did. And he scored it wonderfully. Yeah. And he should, have, he should have scored more Bond films because he was made to score mm -hmm. Bond films. Oh, yeah. So I, what, what's interesting to me is that with, with such an interest in film composition and film score, you have selected a show that, while it has a, an excellent score to it, that mm -hmm. is, or maybe it actually makes sense now that I'm saying it out loud, but it, it is not a, it, I mean, it's a dance show. It is very yeah. much a tap and rhythm show. Is it this sort yep. of like the fact that so much of this, this album is basically score. I mean, there's a lot of score in this that is that is not absolutely there's a lot of lyrics, but there's a lot of stuff that is just straight score with dancing over top. Is that what really grabbed you about about bringing the noise, bringing the funk? Do you think that or one of the things anyway? One of the things it was actually everything. Um, just hearing Anne Ducanet singing and acting, Jeffrey Wright's voice and with his acting, and just and hearing the tap, hearing the tapping. Because that's music too, hearing that tapping. And, you know, um, Zane Mark, Reggie Gaines, and Ducanet, and, uh, you know, they composed the score. It's, it's, and Reggie Gaines wrote the book. And it was everything. It, it, for me, for that show, it wasn't a singular thing. Mm -hmm. It was just, I fell in love with every aspect and every element of that show. And uh, I think the closest, we can get to seeing it uh, nowadays. They performed at the Tony Awards, mm -hmm. and they performed the they performed the opening number, and um, I I uh, so that's the closest I you know get into <laughs> bringing the noise that, <laughs> that I've ever seen. But like you have the whole cast up there, Jeffrey Wright's up there, mm -hmm. uh, Miss Ducanet, and um, oh, it was just great. But yeah, it, it was just one of those moments. And I didn't tell people at that time when I was a kid how much I loved it. I, I, because I didn't think anyone cared to listen. No one cared. I kept that stuff to myself, you know? Hmm. So I, um, 
I just had this, you know, just personal private love for it. And, and lo and behold, you know, some years later, uh, here I am in, in this business and this craft. When, I'm interested when you re-listened to the, to the album this morning, the, uh, to sort of all the way through, was there anything about it that you had forgotten or that struck you as like, oh gosh, that's right, that happened. And that was something that was, you know, really stuck with me. I forgot it was from this show. There, there was a musical moment. Uh, mo- uh, I'd say virtually 99.99% of it that I totally remembered. Mm-hmm. But there was, a, there was a musical number. Uh, musical moments, I should say. And it was during the industrialization portion of the show. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just the sound. It was an industrial sound. And I, that sound might have been synthetic or it might have been, it might have been uh, created through dance or, or tap. Don't let the crackers fool you. And I'm like forever obsessed with the reprise at the very end, like the mm-hmm. closing number, yeah. because Miss Anne, Miss Anne comes out and she sings it. But yeah. it's what she does vocally at the very end of it that makes me go like, <laughs> okay, yeah, we know it. We are, yes, yes, Miss Anne Ducanet, yes, we know why you earned that Tony Award. Yes. <laughs> But like through, like through the whole thing, though. but um, but yeah, it was just like it was like kind of like stamping. It was like stamping, and uh, and I oh but yeah her yeah I can <laughs> I can just love them I can love them Miss Anne Ducanet forever. <laughs> so how did you go from what took you from you know listening to this show, but then loving film com- scores and wanting to be a composer? What put you on the stage nineteen years ago? Or more than that, I guess, where you started. But what, what what got you, you know, over to the performance side? Well, uh, to be very, um, not to be very uh, cliche or corny about it, mm-hmm. then this is very, it's very much the truth. I just simply wanted to talk to people. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really much it. <laughs> That's all I wanted. I just wanted to communicate with people. I wanted to talk. Uh, it was not about being famous or I mean, yeah, me, right. some old, some ra- some random cats from DC. Me, you know, it's not about because I love people. So it was simply about ju- about just wanting to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you know, if you, if you're on stage in a solo moment and you're talking to the audience, you're still talking to people. <laughs> but it's it's uh, but yeah, it's yeah. I just wanted to communicate with folks that's all but it's such an interesting jump to me from 
composition, which is very much uh-huh. backstage. To yes, did you know you had the the sort of basic baseline ability to stand up in front of people and talk without getting nervous and all that? Like, sort of, was that something you you were known to have when you decided to jump over? Public speaking though is different. Public oh, sure. speaking is different. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in terms of performing, mm-hmm. I. I did poetry. I did poetry recitations in elementary school in oh, okay. front of my school mm-hmm. in school assemblies, and I did that a few, uh, one time. It was during a Christmas. It was a. I memorized a Christmas poem mm. called "Rise Up, Shepherd, and Follow," and I got up and I stood there with a the mic, me, my big head, and my big ears, <laughs> and, and the skin, the skinny kid, and I'm standing there just with a mic, just, just just performed it totally memorized it and it was a long poem i remember Mm -hmm. and then um in high school i performed a recitation of robert frost's mending wall and i remember uh uh, just kind of referring to the text because i did have the text in my hand because it's a very long play Mm -hmm. and i excuse me a very long and I'm uh, just kind of going back and referring to it and reading. So those are my two early experiences with performing in front of an audience. And they were both poetry recitations. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why I was chosen was because I spoke. Mm. And uh, for some reason, the teachers were like, oh, Frank, you want to do that? I said, sure, okay, uh, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> I do, no problem. But um, it is interesting to make that, that kind of, it's interesting to make that kind of leap from wanting to be a film composer. Because I was going to go to Berkeley College of Music. Mm-hmm. I was training with a teacher here in town. Well, well she lived way out in um, Potomac at that time. So I was taking three buses to get out to her place to train with her privately. And, uh, but yeah, just one day I, I literally, Patrick, I came at that in the proverbial crossroads and said, you know, I should train for an acting career and see where that takes me. Mm. And I first began training at Shakespeare Theatre Company. And um, I mentioned this on the Embracing Arts podcast, mm-hmm. um, Arlington Talk, Talks podcast with Janet Copenhaver, that um, that was the first acting course that I'd ever taken. I was 20 years old. This was 21 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And yep, the most basic course. And then I realized that there might be a place for me in this. So then I went to train at the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts and um, they just, that put me on the path even more so. And 21 years later, I'm still doing it. (laughs) But um, so that's why I was thrilled because when you asked me to do this podcast, uh, to do the original cast, which, by the way, I'm so happy to finally be doing this with you because yes. we talked about doing this like, oh, yeah. a couple of years Long time ago. ago. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, like a few years ago. And um, because, that, but you know, when you said pick uh, an OBC recording, mm-hmm. I went or or original cast, and I went, oh my god, I want to choose. What am I going to choose? Mm-hmm. Okay, I know a show that means a lot to me that I love, love, love. I'm not the biggest scholar about it, but I know just enough about it because <laughs> I know it's an important show to me. And I went, oh, bring the noise. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
<laughs> and thankfully no one has covered that no no one has covered it yet no well and, and it's actually when you when you mentioned about it wondering why it hadn't been revived one thing that struck me listening to it again i mean i hadn't listened to this and i don't know how many years since i listened to this cast album and i it is shockingly relevant to our current moment absolutely i think i mean but in a way that really knocked me down in a way that it took me took me way off my guard and in you know the overt sections obviously like lynching blues and chicago bound you know and and all that obviously have an overt tragedy to them but even the 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 number that really knocked me over and it was a song i remember but i don't know if i'd ever really listened to it so hard before was um I mean, the kid sequence in the middle, especially Uncle Huckabuck. I mean, that... Yes, Uncle Huckabuck. Uncle Huckabuck. Bakari played Uncle Huckabuck. There you go. And it is just like... (laughs) Yeah. It it blew my hair back and also made me very sad that 25 years later now, it is just like, that is so timely. And it's also about something that happened, you know, almost 60 years before the musical went on. So you just think like, oh my God. Gosh, it's just, and it's also at the same time, and a credit to the performers, I think, so funny. I mean, it's just tragically yeah. funny. Yeah. Tell me, Uncle Huckabuck, what's a high yellow? Why, darling, that's the name of my horse. Tell me, Uncle Huckabuck, where do babies come from? Uncle Huckabuck, why is the sky blue? Hush up, little darling. Dance! Okay. You can hear the audience. The other thing I love about the live recording, which I'm not usually a fan of, but like you said, for this show, it, it, it's, it's crucial. You hear the audience laugh and then stop laughing. Like in almost in the yeah. same breath. They're yeah. like, oh, that's fun. Oh, God, that's not funny. You know, there's this moment of like, uh-huh. and it, you really feel the, like, the audience is, this, this is not a... You know, this is not like Contact. I've heard people compare the show to Contact, you know, as, as a dance musical. Contact's a wonderful show. This is not Contact. Yeah. This show it's has a contact. point. This show has an absolute <laughs> yeah, point. Contact is, yeah, Contact is dance. Is contact dance. is it's great. A, it's but great. It's great. But this yeah, is like, always, yeah. <laughs> there is so much in this that is just directed at and also directed. I wonder if you agree with this. I think it's one of the rare musicals that deals with social issues that is directed at me just as much as it's directed at you, because mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. seems to know. And I, I think this is the G, the, the great uh, blending of Savion Glover and George C. Wolf. It's a knowledge that most people who go see Broadway shows are older white people. And <laughs> so if we want to get this message across <laughs> to older white people, it has to be told in a certain way, but we're still also not going to shy away from it. We're not going to dumb it down for them. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're going to, that's right. They may walk out of here feeling guilty, but they're going to love the dancing and maybe they yeah. won't feel guilty till much later. You know, maybe it'll be much, yeah. they, you know, but it is that, you know, there's so much in it like that. It's so rich. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure lots of folks felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. White folks. I'm Yo, sure yeah. You know, and, oh, yeah. uh, and that's why, you know, I wish I had seen it when it was running because it ran for so long. Yeah, it did. And it ran for yeah, 1996 to 99, over a thousand, yeah. over, over 1100 performances. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, I wish I could have seen this, but 
Uh, but I take comfort in, in those those fond memories of uh, meeting Ms. Dukene and uh, my, my good friend Bakari Wilder. Shout out to Bakari Wilder and Joseph Monroe Webb uh, from the original cast. And because I, I was talking- So I how do you know them? Yeah. Well, well, Bakari, um, uh, I'm, I'm friends with his sister. We all went to the same high school. I mm. think Bakari went to the same high school I, I went to. Um, but I did go to high school with a sister. I was friends with a sister. Okay. And and uh, Joseph, I met many years later, uh, about a couple years ago. And um, but I was chatting with Bakari earlier. But I know Bakari for years. But I chatted with him earlier this week, and I told him I was coming on to the original cast podcast. Mm-hmm. And I said, "I'm going to shout you out. I said, I'm going to shout you out." And <laughs> I, said, I'm, I'm, I said, "I'm going to be talking about bringing the noise, and I'm mm-hmm. going to shout you out." So yeah, I give a shout out to my man Bakari Wilder. He's a great guy, great guy. He and Joseph, great guys. Um, uh, but yeah, he was Uncle Huckabuck. I looked on IBDB, mm-hmm. and he was Uncle Huckabuck uh, Bakari. And um, but yeah, he's a he's a tap master, tap master. Oh gosh, and, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I oh, mean, Dule Hill. Yeah, Dule right. Hill was in it. Yeah, I was Dulé. just gonna say Dule Hill. So can you? What can you tell? Um, what can you tell everybody about your one person show for uh, for first stage? Well, that now it's going. It will get to just a tad dark, but um, uh, six years ago, wow, almost seven now. Jeez. Uh, I was attacked by four people in a random street robbery uh, on the opening night of a show I was in at the time. Uh, Stephen Adley Gurgis's The Last Days of Jews Iscariot, a show which I've done uh, several times before uh, that night. And I was just on my way home from an opening night. I was attacked by four people and part of my parts of the right side of my face was smashed in and uh, it was just a whole lot with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, with blood loss and massive facial and head injuries and, and then what resulted from that, the outpouring of love and support from my community and the rallying that uh, just happened within a day, um, I'm forever wrapping my head around that and uh, I'll be doing that for the rest of my life. Just that show of love mm-hmm. and from your own community, from my own community. And I'm, I'm you know, born and, raised, born and semi-raised in D.C., but now I've lived D- in D.C. more of my life than anywhere else. Um, but I'm uh, yeah, born in D.C., and uh, a native, I was a native until the age of eight. <laughs> but uh, then I moved back to DC proper when I was 20, 23. I was 23. So I've spent more of my life in DC than anywhere else. And um, now I'm still in DC. But you know, just, just this random guy from DC, and I just happened to be in the DC theater community. And and, uh, and everyone knows how much I love my community and how much I, I do my best to support any and everyone um, as much as I can. And then one day, you know, one night, you know, I'm attacked and, and then word gets out and then everyone, <laughs> it, was, it was an endless parade of friends in my hospital room and it was just this love, even from strangers, mm. you know, from my own community and then strangers. Uh, so that 
the play is about that incident and then what happens immediately after mm. and then much later. And it's just all about what happened, how I, how I dealt with it, my gratitude uh, for the love and support that was shown, my gratitude and love for my community. It's kind of like a love letter to my community too. And um, so that's pretty much what the, the play mm -hmm. is about. And I know, I know my, my second solo show, definitely, because I didn't know which one to write about first. Uh, it was going to be about my grandmother, mm. uh, my maternal grandmother, who I, who, with whom I was very close. And everyone on Facebook knew how much <laughs> I was close to my grandmother. And she passed away uh, two years ago she, at the age of 92. And she raised my sister and I. Um, and... Uh, along with my mother, but she was a character in her own rights and she didn't know it. Mm. And she was very <laughs> funny and she didn't know it. She was hilarious, didn't know it. Uh, this tiny five foot one, maybe five two woman from DC. I'm a fourth generation Washingtonian. And um, just, a, you know, she was so sweet, but she was also very much a firecracker, especially mm -hmm. when she was younger. But uh, that carried into her, her elderly age as well. <laughs> and um, there were transcripts about conversations that I posted on Facebook back mm. in the day. Mm -hmm. And because they were always so funny and I would, would remember them verbatim and I would type them up immediately mm -hmm. after I would talk, finish talking with her on the phone and people would just get a kick out of them. And so I, that just became a habit. Mm -hmm. And um, and people loved hearing from her. So I, and she didn't know any of my friends, but they knew about her. <laughs> but I, I but I told them about her. I, I told her about them rather. Mm -hmm. And she was oh she was tickled. She was tickled about that. She was tickled. She loved it. <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, so that's going to be my next solo show. But this first one, uh, I don't want to get too mired in the tragedy of it because mm -hmm. it was it was very it was very serious and. And I could have been killed, and mm -hmm. um, it was a very uh, dark moment in my life. But also the light, the amount of light that came out of it. So that's what I wanted to. I want to focus on more, and uh, if I can, because I know with these drafts, I'm going, uh, I'm going to wind up going into things may change. But I didn't realize, you know, writing how I can get insanely detailed because I still remember every single thing mm -hmm. that happened with the attack. And uh, so I've just been writing it out mm. and I didn't realize how, um, cause I never wrote it out before. Mm -hmm. I just had it all in memory and writing. I didn't realize in, in some days how tough it would be writing it out. Mm -hmm. Every, every single detail from the moment, you know, with the amount of blood I saw mm -hmm. from the, from feeling bones slide up in my face mm -hmm. towards my head, that, yeah, I didn't realize how um, overwhelming at times it would be just mm -hmm. writing about it, sitting at the table alone writing about it. Because I never talked to, I mean, I talked to people about it, but um, I never had to write it down. Mm -hmm. So now, uh, and this is a whole new, this is a whole new territory for me, playwriting. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm so grateful to be friends with numerous playwrights that uh, I, can, I can reach out to. 
um, very wonderful accomplished playwrights I can just you know reach out to and because um, I you know I'm new at this I'm totally mm-hmm. new at this <laughs> yeah I didn't I didn't just start calling myself a first time playwright until recently mm-hmm. until very recently until I got further along in my drafts I was like okay now I feel like a playwright mm-hmm. I feel like a, a I'm a novice playwright but it's it's I'm on that road uh, so I'm. Um, so it's been it's it's going to be um, a really cool experience, and and I'm just because um, I knew I was going to have to tell the story one day because sure. I I had been because it was such a public story and it was so known mm-hmm. that um, you know folks might want to hear from me, <laughs> they might want to hear my my perspective and my take on it, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, and that was, you know, and it's still that whole thing. I mean, the attack itself was so just like, what? Why did it happen to me? I'm nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I was just going, what? what? And um, so that's why I was, you know, it was just it, it, my whole world had turned upside down from that moment on. Sure. But uh, it, it took years. It took years to just kind of settle back into the way my life was before just a bit, mm-hmm. just a bit, um, because that, that whole thing forever changed me, but to not feel so overwhelmed by it all the time, it took actually years. I still think about it every day, but sure. I, especially more than else that I'm writing about it, right. but, um, but it, it, um, I didn't want to have that experience uh, dictate my life and inform my life uh, for the rest of my life. So I said, oh, it was just a moment. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a moment and I'm going to, to share with the world because it's, it's a survival story. And sure. it's just, uh, I went back to work two weeks after it happened. I went back to Judas Iscariot because I was determined to get back to my show. I got back to my show. I had my first facial reconstruction at that time. And um, I still only had about, I had about 85% of my face, but I was still able to speak and I was still able to act. And, um, and I went back to work like, yep, two weeks after. I was just off for two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't stop working. After I just kept going. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it took a, uh, an entire year for my face to uh, fully heal. It took an entire year. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it's things like that will change you, but, but it's how you, you keep going. It's about how you keep going and how you, um, you know, you have just how you keep going with it. Because well, I, I always think yeah. my, I always think my resolve is pretty strong and, um, yeah, resilience, just, just leaning, leaning into my resilience. Well, and what it, what it seems like what you can let it mean. You know, because to, to you, it seems like every time I've ever heard you talk about it, 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 it's always as framed in the sense of a revelation of your community. Like, that's yes, always how I've right. heard you frame it. And yes. so if that's the frame for it, that seems like as healthy a frame as you could have. Not, you know, Absolutely. that there isn't still trauma and there isn't still pain and there isn't all those other things. But mm-hmm. it, it's at least you're starting from a point of, of positivity. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, you can use it you can do something with it instead oh yeah of, you know having it fester oh yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was an up and down day oh you know, sure once, sure, once, sure, once, sure. Thing, once, once things 
kind of subsided and quieted down and, you know, dealing with it on my own. And so it's just navigating through all of that. So I have to ask <laughs> be, before we totally wrap up, though, I do have to Absolutely. ask, what Please. is your favorite song in Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk? Oh, Something From Nothing. Mm. Something From Nothing. The, the one I talked to Miss Ducanet about. Yep. Mm-hmm. Something From Nothing. Mm-hmm. That's the one that gets you. Yep. That's a good one. That's hard mm-hmm. to argue with. It's <laughs> very hard to argue with. So, I, almost to, I almost wanted to break out like singing it with her. Mm. I, I came that close. <laughs> I came that close. I think we, I think we hummed a couple of notes. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I was just like, I think we, she, we were kind of going through that for just a second if I ever call, but, mm-hmm. but we didn't break, I didn't break the full song with it, but Patrick, I so wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Frank. This was so much fun. Oh, you're most welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. Took from nothing and made yeah. We took something from nothing. And made some, yes we did, loaded, loaded now, hey, loaded, loaded now, hey, worked so hard, they done stole our drum, now where the beats, best listen up cause I ain't gonna repeat, beat, be getting beat on a hot picking day. Been laying on high John the Conqueror to make the pain go away. Be oxtails and pig cuts the boss toss down. We takes us, then makes us the finest feast round. Beat, be a creeping neath a black cat sky. And forever asking questions, though you know the reason why. Zigzagging braids upside says his nappy hate. Be our ancestors' spirits laughing Though their bones is stone-cold day Be, be our boots all broke down and torn Scaping through the swamp in the early morn Beat, be the beat singing rhythm to our feet Make a sad soul right happy Be the way that we speak The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn the original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at Unknown Penguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Frank Britton for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. <laughs>